0: Welcome to Behavioral Science Uncovered, the podcast about behavioral science and how it is made. Hello everyone, this is BS Uncovered. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Olivia and today we'll be talking with Dr. Robert Metcalf from Boston University. Hello Robert, it's a pleasure to have you with us.
1: Thanks Olivia, pleasure to be here.
0: Today we'll be discussing your paper, Measuring the Welfare Effects of Shame and Pride. For anyone who hasn't yet read the paper, could you briefly explain what it is about?
1: Yes, absolutely, um, and, and thank you for uh, having interest in the paper. So, so what we try to do is understand like, how public recognition And and that as a a vehicle to change behavior impacts on, on the welfare of individuals whose behavior will be revealed. So many organizations, both public and private organizations and also charitable organizations, use that tool of publicly revealing behavior to try and change the behavior of its customers, its employees or its donors. And so there's been many experiments, many field experiments, and many just instances of this in in the markets where this does actively change behavior. So we see this in charitable donations. Uh, Ricardo Perez-Truglia and Guillermo uh, Cruces has a paper on this suggesting that you reveal people's donations. That changes their behavior. Same for tax compliance. Again, Ricardo has a paper on that. Uh, Leo Burstein and Rob Jensen have a paper on educational choices. So we've seen a lot lot more field experiments in this area. But we see very little on on how to understand what are the welfare consequences by being publicly revealed. And and, and being revealed probably if you are a high-performing individual, so if you give a lot of money to charity, if you pay your taxes on time, uh, you're a good student, you might want to be revealed and you might get pride from being revealed. On the other hand, if you are a low performing individual, so someone who avoids their taxes, someone who doesn't exercise so much, someone who doesn't give to charity or has poor educational outcomes, you might not wanna be revealed and you might get shame from that. So what we try to do in this paper is come up with a sort of a a portable money metric method that can be used for understanding what are these sort of welfare consequences associated with, with pride and with shame. And then trying to understand how can we put that in, in a money metric so that we can compare those costs and benefits with, say, the costs and benefits of changing the behavior directly. So that's the kind of uh, overview of, of the paper. But and, and then we try to understand you know, how this can be sort of operationalized in reality and, and what other things researchers should be doing or, or policymakers or People who are heads of of corporations should be doing to understand those of welfare effects of pride and shame. And and this goes back to the mid to late 1980s, where Jack Welsh, who was the CEO of General Electric, uh, he wrote a a book called uh, Straight from the Gut. And in that, he talks about the importance of publicly revealing employees' productivity and ranking them from the best to the worst. And they will get compensation based on that and they'll get hired based on that so that became a standard tool that many companies use to try to motivate and engage uh, their employees but it might backfire in terms of actually reducing the the welfare consequences and the long-term productivity of those employees so it's it's a method that's being used across many different markets and we want to be able to understand the welfare consequences of that
0: thank you for that explanation this paper is joint with uh, Luigi Butera, William Morrison, and Dmitry Tobinsky. How did you come to collaborate with them on this project? And how did you end up splitting the tasks?
1: Yeah, so very, very fortunate to work with three very skilled <laughs> economists. So so I was, a, I was a postdoc at University of Chicago before I moved to Boston University. And mm-hmm. I overlapped, or Luigi overlapped some of my time there. And so Luigi's been doing some work on thinking about image and how image concerns impacts on whether you give to charities or not. So Luigi is kind of like a, a, an expert in that area. And then at the same time I was talking to Dimitri, because obviously he's like a, a well-known established behavioral economist interested in public finance and trying to understand you know, how do we how do we assess what is going on like the the impact of nudges. So I've been talking to him for a while on trying to do something in this area. So we kind of all came together and then William is an up-and-coming PhD student at the University of Berkeley and he was working with Dimitri on a lot of these sort of issues on a bit on tangentially and so we brought him into the project as well. So it was kind of like all the sort of the pieces came together of all of our joint interests and then we just decided to do the experiments together, run the analysis, write the paper, estimate the model. You know, we, we all have various skills that we would do on the paper and it kind of came together. I think we we're all quite productive on, on, this, uh, on this paper. But I think it kind of stimulated a lot of the interest and expertise that each, each one of us had and it, and it came together quite well.
0: And more generally, how do you go about selecting your co-authors and do you have any advice on forming successful co-authorships?
1: Yeah, that's a a great question. (laughs) Like you you don't you don't want to choose co-authors that you don't like working with for three or four years. So I really do think it's it's having like that good match of personality. I think that's important you know to find someone that you like to work with enjoy and you have some fun you know academia is hard Uh, there's there's a lot of rejections there's a lot of lack of recognition (laughs) the opposite of this paper and so to have people that you enjoy working with where you get some excitement and you get like productive meaningful conversations and ideas together i think that's for me first order concern and so I just try to talk to as many academics as I can on, on interests in areas that I care about. And if there's an interest, then we just you know decide to think about doing something together. So there's no science behind it apart from just finding people that you enjoy working with.
0: Great. For this project, you conducted the first set of experiments with the YMCA. Can you tell us a bit about how this partnership was formed?
1: Yeah. So what happened with with the YMCA, I was actually presenting a, a different paper uh, at a conference. It's called the Science for Philanthropy Initiative Conference that was based in Chicago at the time and, and journalists and others run that every year. So back in 2015, 2015 I was presenting uh, a paper that I was doing on the impact of management practices on, on airline captains' productivity. And one of the treatment cells or treatment groups in in that paper was trying to reward airline captains for actually being fuel efficient through pro-social donations. So we would say, hey, if you hit your target on these fuel efficiency metrics, we will donate X dollars to the charity of your choice. And so Ryan Johnson who was at the YMCA of the US at the time and he was sort of head of research and Eric Duber who was also sort of trying to get partnerships with with the YMCA uh, outside of the organization they were both in the audience and so they came up to me at the end saying like we like we like this paper but we like that treatment group and that that idea like how could you extend it in the YMCA And so that got us thinking about how can we actually try to come up with a way that we can motivate their own donors or their own members to engage more in the behavior where we can motivate them to do it based on donating to, say, the YMCA or another cause. And so that was the spark as to why uh, those two entities came together. And then they they were just, Ryan and and Eric were just phenomenal in getting support uh, inside of the YMCA to try and find a a local chapter. Because the YMCA is an organization where you have like the HQ, they're responsible for operations and strategy and management. And then it's devolved to all of these chapters across the world. And so they were fantastic in trying to find us a a chapter in in the U.S. that might be open to do uh, some experiments in this area. And then we met uh, Tony Campioni, who was the head of research in the YMC of the, the Triangle area. And they were interested in, in what we were trying to do. So they came on board. And then Maria Alicia Sariano at, at YMC of the US kind of like drove all the research out. Uh, so, so Ryan left to go to another organization. So we needed another sort of internal champion uh, with these things. And I think that's a really important lesson that I've learned over the last five, 10 years of doing field experiments with organizations is you need to have that internal champion who is willing to put from like the cradle to the grave of the project, support it. And I think we've been very lucky to find those individuals at the YMCA.
0: And following on from this, were there any types of ethical and logistical constraints that you faced in your implementation of the experiment with the YMCA? And were there any specific concerns from the organization that needed to be addressed up front?
1: Yeah, so we were quite quick to get like an NDA in place with the YMCA and get a, a data use agreement together. So we were quite clear from, from the start, you know, what we wanted to have from their members in terms of the data from, from the YMC of the, of the Triangle area. Um, so we had that in place, and then once we knew the exact design of the experiment, we got IRB approval for the design of the experiment. And so that seemed to be everything that we needed to do from an ethical point of view. We ran sort of two waves of experiments. So we had to get IRB approval twice, one for the first set with the YMC, and then we did sort of separate experiments in chadwell Given. So we got a separate IRB approval from all of the institutions involved for those sort of latter series of, of experiments. But, you know, what's what's nice with our approach here is, you know, we, we are giving people informed consent straight from the get-go as soon as they sign up for a survey to take part in our experiment. So individuals knew exactly what was going on and all the organizations involved knew what was going on. So we didn't see, apart from getting IRB from various institutions we pre-registered the trial as well we didn't see anything else we needed to do
0: and focusing on the rollout of the experiment did you go through a piloting phase and how long did it take for you to complete the whole experiment from the design stage to the final data collection
1: yeah great question so i think when you get a partner on board who is willing to do a field experiment It's it's exciting and you want to just go into the field straight away (laughs) because you don't know how long that part is gonna be around for to do this field experiment. So you you always have that urge to just go off and and just do the big experiment straight away. So we we try to resist that resist that urge here and we try to do a a pilot just to see whether, you know, what we were doing in terms of creating a survey, creating a a tool to estimate the willingness to pay for for pride and shame. We wanted to see whether people like understood it. Could we get any feedback? So we actually ran um, a pilot with, with the YMCA initially just to understand, you know, get that feedback and to understand, you know, did it actually make sense for individual members who are gonna be, you know, potentially subjects in our feature experiment. So we ran a pilot with them and then we got the feedback. We tinkered or edited our, our design in terms of like how we listed the willingness to pay. And then we ran the full-blown uh, experiment with the YMCA in 2018. And then we just w- try to work on the paper as much as we could straight after that. So, so once we had the the data from the field experiment, I think turned it round into a paper. I think we all just coordinate our efforts to do that as quickly as possible. And I can't remember how long that took, but it was it was relatively quick because we all just made sure what our tasks were and what we needed to do for the paper. And I think again for 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 those listening who are graduate students or young researchers, I, I think we can always. Think about cool projects where you want to randomly encourage you know, customers or employees or subjects into a treatment group through like a randomized encouragement design and then observe behavior over the long term. In our cases, we were looking at, we were announcing that your, your behavior might be revealed or not over the next month. And so the feedback or like the the, the time difference between starting the experiment and the end of the experiment was 30 days most of my projects take longer than thirty days so this one was relatively quick in terms of you know setting setting the start date the bang of the gun and then 30 days later getting the results that was something that was a good design that we had so that we could actually you know write this paper quite quickly some of my other projects especially like on energy use you've got to wait you know a year or two years to actually get the data back to see any like medium to long-term changes in behavior so i definitely do recommend students trying to get a portfolio of papers or projects if you're doing field experiments that have different time lengths because you know sometimes things take two years you don't get the result that you want then you have to go back to the drawing board so i think trying to find like these instances where you can do these quick or say short-term experiments are, are pretty useful
0: you mentioned that you conducted a second set of experiments, this time online and focusing specifically on charitable giving. Can you explain how you made this choice and what was the goal of this additional set of experiments?
1: Yeah, so, so the goal of the additional experiments was to see, like, how robust was our method on incentivizing truthful responses about willingness to pay for, for pride and shame? Like, how we ask, and I know the continued valuation literature for for a long while has said like, you know, how you ask people about the willingness to pay for a certain good affects their willingness to pay. And so we didn't have the power to do that type of analysis with the YMCA. So what we were thinking about is like, could we we replicate what we've done with the YMCA in the first round with them again, but actually like randomize different ways that we elicit the willingness to pay? Like how much information do we give them about previous performance? how many times do we ask them the willingness to pay for each step of performance? So for example, in, in the, the exercise, a case with the YMCA, we're asking people, Hey, if if you go to the gym zero times over the next month, what's your willingness to pay to be recognized or not to be recognized? You know, most people don't want to be recognized and are willing to pay a meaningful amount not to be recognized. So do we go up in like one unit attendances up till 30 or do we try to group them together? And so we don't want to like overburden the subjects in this experiment. So we actually uh, tried to like group together the higher numbers of attendances. And so we wanted to see, you know, does that grouping affect what the shape of the public recognition utility function would look like? And so we, we didn't do that in the first experiment. We wanted to, the, to, to do that in the second round of experiments. And then so that for Q1 of this year, we were like, OK, let's just go back out to the field uh, and do the experiments. And then COVID hit. And we were like, ah, like we just cannot do a gym experiment during COVID. Like all, all the gyms of the YMCA were, were were closed down. So we had to think about an alternative. So we, we went to charitable giving just because, uh, and do it online, just because there are, you know, within the COVID area, there are a lot of people who are willing to do experiments online. And we knew like the two papers by Dana Rialli. Anna Bracker and Stefan Meyer in the AER, you know, showed that through, through publicly revealing people's behavior, you can increase charitable effort. Then you had Stefano Delevenia's and Devin Pope's recent paper on effort for various tasks. So we tried to get students to put effort onto typing up on a, on a keyboard. And then we randomized whether you got like private incentives, pro-social incentives pro social with that public revelation of your behavior. And so we just took samples from Prolific, so of the online survey uh, market. We took uh, an experimental sample from UC Berkeley. And then I had a range of classes that I was teaching at BU. And so we tried to like sample those students from those first and second years of the business school in Boston University and tried to understand like these small subtle features of how we listed willingness to pay across these three, three different samples and so that was kind of like the reason why we pivoted a little bit towards charitable giving because doing anything with gyms in the COVID area was kind of or era was kind of uh, closed down and I feel really bad for for students and, and young researchers who did have or have had projects in this area and doing field experiments with partners I, I feel really bad because not only can they not travel to a place to do an experiment, but also the department the and organization has probably like locked down their their resources to do some experiments. So it's a very difficult time to to do experiments. I think, you know, I don't know how that will play out in the next three or four years, but we had a pivot because there was just no way for us to do the experiment with a gym facility uh, in the foreseeable future.
0: That's interesting, you managed to adapt quite quickly though. And all things considered, what do you feel were the most challenging aspects of the overall project?
1: Yeah, I think the the most challenging aspect of any field experiment really is is, is getting that partner on board uh, and getting getting the partner on board so that they can understand what is what are the important aspects of the the experiment that you that you are doing that can help inform that organization. And so. First of all, you got to find like the right person in that organization that cares about your experiment, and then you got to like convince that person like why the company or why the organization should care about that experiment. But sometimes that's challenging. I would I would say for the YMCA that was relatively easy because we had Ryan and we had Eric who were just phenomenal in in seeing the value add that this can provide to not themselves, but just the YMCA organization altogether. And actually they cared about um, academic science. They actually believed that what we were doing was quite novel uh, and they could see it been applied outside of the gym context or outside of, of the YMCA context. So, so for them, you know, and, and again, we got on really well with them. We had a lot, lot of fun and productive meetings. And I think that sometimes can be the hardest part. In this case, it was, fairly straightforward because they, they were just great people uh, and the YMC just generally you know, has been really supportive. I would, I would still say that's the most challenging because the rest of the things rest of the experiment and writing the paper and, and doing analysis all kind of flowed well once we did the experiment well and I think that's, that's always the hard part is you know convincing those partners to do the experiment, get them bought in to it, especially when the publication timelines are, are really long you know, but both Ryan and Eric are not part of the YMCA right now. But they believe that, you know, even though publication might take three or four or five years down the line, that, you know, the results can be shared internally, uh, we would have a working paper, and we can disseminate the research more generally. So again, it's, it's trying to find someone who understands the differences between the academic timelines, and also like the internal organizational timelines.
0: And besides what we might have already discussed, is there anything else you would have done differently in this project?
1: I think for this one, probably not. With with, with perfect hindsight with COVID, I would have like tried to do this experiment a year earlier so that we could have done like the, the robustness checks of how we listed the willingness to pay on, on a YMCA sample. But you know, uh, that was just impossible to forecast. And so I would say for everything that we've done, all the steps that we've taken, and how the, the paper was was written, I think we've done everything that we could have given the information that we had at the time. But now looking back with COVID, I think we all believe we could have done projects a little bit earlier <laughs> to get things done before our experiments got uh, derailed because of COVID.
0: Moving on to your research more generally, it tends to cover a broad scope of areas with the goal of harnessing the power field experiments to test economic theory and offer new policy insights. How do you select the type of research projects which you work on?
1: So usually for me, I'm doing work in, in markets like energy, the environment, transportation, charitable giving, where there's usually some regulation involved. And there are externalities probably in, in that market. And regulators want to know, you know how to best regulate these, these companies or these organizations to you know, better serve society like we don't know exactly what's in their objective function, but usually we're trying to improve the outcomes for the individuals in in that market. And so it becomes really interesting because the regulators want to know what the supply curve or the demand curve looks like in a given market so they can regulate it well. So usually there, there are organizations or companies that are willing to try to do research with academics so that we can better understand what those two curves look like we can understand you know how to use behavior initiatives to improve customer satisfaction for example so in in the us for utilities various commissions who are the ones who are regulating energy markets they obviously have a, have a, a whole range of different ob- objectives that they want to achieve but one other thing is one, one of the objectives is trying to reduce energy consumption of households up to a certain level and then they'll incentivize the utility to do so. So how do we actually understand whether that, that works or not? So now there's like randomized controlled trials to understand okay what these util- what is the value add from the from the interventions that these utilities are doing. And so they want to show to the commissions you know what they are doing so that they can get incentivized and get subsidized for for that work. So so I think if the incentives are right, these organizations in these markets are usually willing to work with academics because you know, they do want some independent outside organization to show what they're doing actually does change behavior or improves welfare or they can estimate the supply curve. So I think for me, regulated markets are kind of an area where I feel like you can do more field experiments because usually the incentives for the regulators and for the companies are to provide you know, the best available information.
0: How does a standard day of work look like for you? And how about compare that to when you're running an experiment in the field?
1: Yeah, so I'd say apart from when you're doing admin and <laughs> not doing referee reports, a lot of my time is is talking to organizations and, and, and writing proposals. And I think what we, what we don't see with individuals that seem on paper to be you know, quite successful in pulling off experiments with with organizations is you have to ask a lot of organizations because a lot of them ultimately will say no. Or if they say yes initially, to find the right people or teams in an organization to run the experiment is sometimes challenging. Then if you find the right team and people, do they have the resources and the budget to do the experiment? then if you find that is, okay, can we actually implement it? And are there things that are going to change it from a a company or cultural level point of view? So there there are many different, I would say, roadblocks that can can occur of why an experiment might not happen. And so to get through all those roadblocks and do an experiment with an organization like that, that's a a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. And so the likelihood that that a project fails is probably quite high. So I think for me, as part of my normal day, is reaching out to organizations, those in my network, those not in my network, on research areas that I think would be would be interesting to get involved with, and, and try to understand whether they can do field experiments in this area, or partner to just to, to share data. And so for me, I, I'm on the phone a lot, or on Zoom a lot, and I write in proposals a lot, uh, in addition to trying to write up the papers that i already have <laughs> i'm sure some of my courses will want me to work faster and and trying to do referee reports and trying to be a professor that mentors students as well so it's it's, it's challenging especially now with, with the time of covid because like how do you find an organization that's willing to do an experiment uh, in this time that that's it's really challenging now so i think the costs have gone up for researchers so so I'm def- i definitely recognize that i think they might be more asking to be to be done in the future because now there were just so many organizations that are constrained, constrained to do any experiments. And so I think maybe more of my time will be asking companies and organizations to run experiments in the future.
0: And lastly, what single piece of advice would you give to early career researchers trying to write a publisher or paper?
1: For me, based on my experience, and it's not going to be the same for everyone, but I think being persistent with organizations because you need to you know, constantly follow up with people in an organization to get an experiment done. Especially if you're a young researcher and you don't have the team behind you to do all, all of the stuff. You have to be not just a good economist and, and know what the test, but you have to be to some extent, when you're young, a good project manager. And and, and that's tough. And so being persistent in setting up meetings, talking to people, getting things done, setting objectives, um, setting time timescales—these are all things you, you've got to do as a young researcher. And so, I would say be persistent and have perseverance in in trying to line up individuals and agents within organisations to do to do experiments. All right. So, I just think, as I said before, you know, people who do field experiments get a lot of rejection from companies and organisations. And so, you need to find out as quickly as possible whether that organization is, is interested in partnering with you. And I think being persistent, getting like data use agreements in place, getting NDAs in place, um, getting them to share data. These are all things that you can get done quite quickly and, and you can then figure out how serious that organization is to, to want to work with you. And so, so my advice comes from a place where I'm trying to work with organizations and partner with them to actually run field experiments to test theory. And so for me, my my advice is just try to get to the point where you can know whether organization is interested or not as quickly as possible. And to do that requires a little bit of perseverance and a, a good amount of project management skills.
0: Oh, I think that's some really valuable advice. Great, well, thank you for taking the time to talk with us today.
1: Oh, th- thank you, Olivia, for having me on. And, and um, yeah, if anybody has any interest in, in the paper, feel free to email me. You're happy to chat about it.